today we're taking a deep dive and exploring the world of Bitcoin. My guest today is Vijay Boyapati. Vijay published his article, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, back in 2018, and since then has become one of the most sought-after educators in this space. In our conversation, I get Vijay to explain and demystify the underlying technology of Bitcoin. We then talk about the drivers for Bitcoin's price appreciation over time and address some of the inherent risks. My aim is that after listening to this episode, anyone can go from total newbie to having a rational and intelligent conversation. I have other episodes planned in this space, so I will house the podcast and resource links, including Vijay's article, at medicalmoney.com slash Bitcoin. This episode is sponsored by Binance, the world's largest retail crypto exchange. Binance enables you to easily purchase Bitcoin and other digital assets using your smartphone or computer. Their trading commission is just 0.1% and they accept OSCO fund transfers with no additional fees. New clients will get 10% off your trading fees by visiting medicalmoney.com slash Binance. That's B-I-N-A-N-C-E. Hey, I'm Andrew, and this is the Medical Money Podcast, where we talk about personal finance, investing, and other random topics to make you a happier human. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review and share the episode with someone you care about. You can connect with me via my blog, medicalmoney.com, and just remember that the content of this podcast is general in nature and not personal financial advice. Podcast guests are sharing their own opinions and may hold positions in companies discussed. Please seek professional advice before making any financial decision and always read the product disclosure statements. VJ, thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thanks for uh, having me on your podcast. Thank you. Um, you're one of the thought leaders in the space and have been for a number of years now, and I'm super excited to do this episode, just to let the kind of listeners know that it's uh, just ticked past 5.30am in Australia, where we are. And in today's interview, I'd like to cover a range of topics. My aim is really to help listeners understand what Bitcoin is, the value proposition and the risks that it presents, and then to be able to empower them to decide whether it makes sense for their investment portfolios or whether they um, really want to just uh, sit back and watch it for a little bit longer. To start us off, can you please tell us about your background and how you got bitten by the uh, Bitcoin bug? Okay, so just to go back to, you know, I'm going to go back several years now, but uh, I'm Australian, as your audience can probably tell. Uh, and like you, I, uh, I started off at med school at the University of Adelaide. But uh, unlike you, I didn't finish. I, I dropped out after two weeks when they brought the cadavers out. Uh, and I realized med school wasn't for me. And I, I went back to uh, the city I grew up in, Canberra, and, and did a degree in mathematics and computer science. Um, after that, I uh, came to the US to do a PhD in computer science, but ultimately didn't start that and um, ended up, up at a, a startup that uh, people are probably familiar with now called Google. Um, and since uh, working at Google, I, I left after about five years. I did um, uh, a whole bunch of startups. Um, and uh, I came across Bitcoin in 2011 uh, when a friend and I had a bet with each other uh, about the Federal Reserve. They had one of their policy meetings, one of their regular meetings they had to set interest rates, which the, you know, the Australian Central Bank does the same thing. And the bet was for a single silver eagle, uh, which is a silver coin which weighs one ounce. Uh, and I ended up winning that bet. 
And my friend said, hey, you know, I can give you the silver eagle, but how about instead of giving you uh, that one silver coin, which was worth $50 at the time, how about I give you this other thing called bitcoins? Uh, it's this new form of money. And, I, you know, I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, but my friend is a really intelligent, brilliant uh, investor. And so I said, sure, I'll take the bitcoins. And so instead of that one silver coin, he gave me five Bitcoins, which were worth about $10 each at the time. Uh, and I had to, uh, this was very early on. So I had to download the Bitcoin software. I had to download the blockchain. And, you know, we're going to talk about what some of these things mean. Uh, and then he, he, he sent five Bitcoins on the Bitcoin network to me. And he showed me a very early block explorer, which is a, a way of seeing uh, which addresses have how many Bitcoins. And he said, see, I sent you five Bitcoins. And it just, it looked like gobbledygook to me. I had no idea what any of it was, but I said, okay, fine. Um, and so the, the end of that story is I, I ended up losing those Bitcoins because uh, I, I gave that laptop to an ex-girlfriend uh, when the those bitcoins weren't really worth much at all. Maybe they were worth a hundred dollars and said, here, have the laptop. And that laptop was stolen from her. And so those bitcoins have essentially been destroyed because the private keys to control them are on that laptop. Uh, and, and you can see the, those bitcoins have never moved. You can actually see them on the blockchain, uh, or sorry, on a block explorer and see that they've never moved. So probably the laptop has been destroyed. Uh, so yeah, that that's kind of a, a brief history of how I, I came to Bitcoin and, and my background as a computer scientist. Yeah, so it's interesting how you've uh, yeah how you left early, which is probably a good idea. We still a lot of guys kind of get finish med school and then um, not enjoy medicine and figuring that out, you know, after after everything. Yeah, is done. well, the so thing was great to... about the the University of Adelaide, that, and I think it may have been new at the time. I I um I came to the University of Adelaide in 1997. Was that they they got into that practical stuff really early on? They brought the cadavers out really early on, so. You know, they, they, it was almost for the shock value, I think, to, you know, scare people off who weren't really meant to be doctors. Whereas if I had gone to Sydney or, you know, one of the other universities that had a medical program, they, they do science for two or three years. And I could have gone and done that for two or three years and then realized afterwards that I wasn't meant to be a doctor. So I'm really grateful uh, that the University of Adelaide had that kind of practical stuff really early on and, um, yeah. Got, well, got people exposed to it so that uh, yeah. people like me would know not that it wasn't for them. Yeah, that would have been. Uh, yeah, we would have been two years apart, and that was the. Uh, you're probably the first year where they had the um, the interview system, and I was. I think it was the third year. So yeah, they definitely changed the admissions process and and the curriculum for that. All right. Um, before we dig deep, in a nutshell, in your opinion, why should people own Bitcoin? Uh, well, th there's a couple of good reasons. I think it's probably the most uh, important asymmetric bet that anyone around the world can bet on today. Uh, and by asymmetric bet, I mean something that you can bet on where the downside is essentially 1x. So you say put $100 into Bitcoin, you could lose your $100. But the upside, I think, is still at least 100x. Uh, so you could 100x your investment. Now, that's not to say you should put all of your portfolio in, but I think it definitely should be a component of a, a well-diversified uh, portfolio. The other reason is if you sort of look historically, since Bitcoin has been created, it's 
increased in value on average 200% per year every year for the last decade. Uh, and there's, been, there's no asset on earth comparable to that in terms of returns. Now, whether those returns continue into the future, that's, that's an open question. But certainly over the last decade, Bitcoin has done incredibly well. Uh, and and we, we're going to dig into some of the reasons why it has and, and what it's all about. Excellent. So it's um it's a it's a limited risk with a significant potential um, upside or right tail right tail event in the future if it plays out nicely. Good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's lay the foundation with some Bitcoin basics. What is Bitcoin? So we sort of have to go back to the nineties. Uh, there was a there was a group of people called the Cypherpunks. And they were really interested in in the, the the question of privacy. They felt like governments were starting to encroach on people's privacy and really wanted to control what people could say and uh, how they could communicate with other people around the world. And so they were really interested in creating an economy on the internet, which used this uh, new technology that had been developed in the 70s and 80s, cryptography, which... Uh, so digital cryptography, cryptography itself has been around a very long, long, long time. But they wanted to use the tools of cryptography to build an online society, an online economy. And one of the big problems was how do you build uh, a money, a, a monetary system that isn't controlled by the government? And so they worked on this problem for at least a decade and really didn't come up with a, a very effective solution. They had a number of proposals, but they were either too complex or assumed things worked in, a, in on net, worked on computer networks in a perfect way, so there weren't really realistic assumptions, or they were too centralized. And, and what I mean by that was that there were attempts to create uh, digital non-government money that were created by companies. But the problem is when a company creates a form of money, it's very easy for a government to come in and say, well, we don't like this, we shut the co company down, or the company could just go bankrupt and, and the money could disappear. So this problem of creating money, uh, a digital form of money that didn't have a central point of control was in their minds for over a decade, and no one had really come up with a solution to it. Uh, then in, in 2008, uh, an anonymous figure who went by the name Satoshi Nakamoto published a design to a cryptography mailing list saying that he had solved this problem. Uh, and a lot of the people who were on this mailing list were incredibly skeptical. They'd never heard of this fellow. He'd never posted before. No one had, had seen him mentioned anywhere. And they knew the history of people trying to create digital uh non-sovereign money, money not uh, controlled by a government, and they just didn't think it was possible anymore. But in fact, Satoshi Nakamoto came up with an incredibly elegant design which made decentralized money possible, uh, and that's what Bitcoin is. It's the first uh, form of money, money that exists entirely on the internet that doesn't have a central point of control, that doesn't have a a government issuing it or a company issuing it and isn't backed by a commodity just exists on the internet. So this was an incredibly important breakthrough in computer science. Um, there was a, a long-standing problem in computer science known as the Byzantine generals problem that had no solution. And Satoshi Nakamoto solved this problem in computer science and his solution to the problem is what made uh 
digital decentralized money possible. Um, so it's a very important breakthrough just from a, the point of view of computer science and economics. Mm. And so how many Bitcoin are, will there be in the future? Can you just talk a bit about that, the numbers and how many are mined a day? Sure. So uh, the Bitcoin protocol was designed so that there would be a fixed number of Bitcoins ever produced. And they're produced in a process known as mining. Uh, and it's kind of a digital analogy to gold mining, but really very different to, to gold mining. Uh, and ultimately, the total number of Bitcoins that will be mined will be 21 million Bitcoins or very close to 21 million Bitcoins. And that process of uh, the mining of these Bitcoins takes approximately 120 years. So the last Bitcoins will be mined in the year 2140. Um, but the total number of Bitcoins that will ever be mined is 21 million. And it's sort of the number of Bitcoins that are mined sort of uh, asymptotically approaches 21 million. So most of them have already been mined. Approximately 18.6 million out of the 21 million Bitcoins have already been mined uh, and, and are owned by various people around the world and they trade on the market and people can buy and sell them. Mm. Can you explain what is the blockchain? Because that's another term that's obviously uh, been thrown around a lot recently. Yeah, yeah. So the blockchain is the history of all transactions that have ever happened on the Bitcoin network. And Bitcoin is designed in a way that it can be decentralized. So there's no central point of control. And this history of all the transactions that have happened on the network since Bitcoin was created uh, and the network went live uh, a little over a decade ago, are stored uh, on every computer that's participating on the network. Uh, and, and this allows anyone who's running a computer on the Bitcoin network to verify for themselves whether a, transac a transaction submitted to the network is valid or not, because you have the entire history of transactions, and this allows you to construct uh, a ledger of who controls how many Bitcoins. Well, not necessarily who... Uh, in, in terms of an individual person, but which addresses, which Bitcoin addresses control how many Bitcoins. And so you, if you run a computer on the Bitcoin network, you have that entire history and that history is called the blockchain. Mm. And what is a Satoshi? Uh, a Satoshi, well, Satoshi Nakamoto was the, the, the creator of Bitcoin and a Satoshi is the smallest unit uh, of the, the Bitcoin currency. So in the same way that uh, in Australia and the US, the dollar is the currency, the smallest unit of a dollar is a cent, a single cent. Uh, a single Satoshi is the smallest unit of a single Bitcoin, except it's it's much smaller than one cent is to the dollar. There are, uh, there are 10 million or maybe perhaps it's 100 million Satoshis per Bitcoin. So you can subdivide a Bitcoin into much, much smaller pieces than you can subdivide a dollar. Mm. So as we see the uh, the price of Bitcoin go up, we might be starting to talk in Satoshis rather than Bitcoin prices uh, in the in the future. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, a, that's an important point you bring up. Some people get a little bit caught up on the idea that buying a single Bitcoin uh, is too expensive so that they don't want to do it. But really, you can subdivide Bitcoin to, you know, arbitrarily small fractions, essentially. So you don't have to buy a single Bitcoin. You can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. Uh, but it does expose something which is called unit bias uh, that 
humans have this psychological tendency to want to complete a task in its entirety and that leads to you know sort of problems of um just in in dietary science people overeating because they they want to eat their entire portion even if it's too big and so people have this same bias when they think about uh buying cryptocurrencies they think well i I, I want to have a whole Bitcoin, so it's too expensive. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go and buy a different cryptocurrency because it seems cheaper uh, because the the unit price is cheaper. And it re- that's really not the correct way to think about asset prices. So, for instance, you don't look at a penny stock and say, wow, this is really cheap because it's a few pennies. Uh, you look at the value of the, the company. So Apple isn't expensive just because the price of the stock is expensive. You have to look at kind of the cash flow of the, the company. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's a good point that you brought up is that uh, um, Bitcoins can be subdivided. And, and if you don't feel like you want to invest in buying a whole Bitcoin, you can buy a fraction of Bitcoin. Mm. And you mentioned that there's a limit on the number of Bitcoins at 21 million, and we're hitting asymptotically that number by 2140. Can you explain what the halving cycle means? Yeah. So the way Bitcoins are produced, they're produced by miners. And miners are computers on the Bitcoin network that perform a very important function, which is to validate transactions to make sure they're valid before they get added to the blockchain. And as a reward for serving this function, and miners actually have to expend energy in this process, um, miners are rewarded with Bitcoins. And the number of Bitcoins that a miner is rewarded with, in the first four years, it started off as 50 Bitcoins per block. And a block is uh, a batch of transactions that get validated by a miner. And once they're validated, they get added to the blockchain. Now, once a miner validates a block, which is a group of transactions, they get rewarded with those Bitcoins. So for the first year, four years, each time uh, a miner validated a block, they would get 50 Bitcoins. But every four years in an event called the halving, the reward that miners get gets halved. So the first four years, the reward per block was 50 Bitcoins. In the next four years, it dropped to 25 Bitcoins. And the next four years after that, it was 12.5 Bitcoins. And currently, the reward that miners get uh, for mining a block is 6.25 Bitcoins. And so it keeps the reward that miners get keeps getting reduced over time. And that's why Bitcoin will asymptotically reach uh, a total supply of 21 mil- million Bitcoins because eventually the reward that miners get will go to zero. And so can you explain what's meant by hash rate in terms of mining? Yeah, so Bitcoin miners have to expend energy finding these almost like digital needles in a haystack. Uh, And this is one of the the breakthroughs that Satoshi Nakamoto came up with was how do you get computers uh, that are in a distributed system on the internet that don't necessarily trust each other. How do you get them to coordinate in in a way that allows them to um, believe that they're sort of working towards the same goal? And the, the way that he came up with it was a system called proof of work, which had actually been invented uh, a little earlier uh, by Adam Back. And proof of work is a system where you exhaustively search for a particular pattern. And then once you've found that pattern, it can be very easily verified and quickly verified by other people that you transmit it to. And this system called proof of work uh, 
was originally invented to solve the problem of email spam uh, because email spam in the late 90s was a huge problem and it's actually still a, a problem. Uh, and the idea was what you do is you get people to uh, do this proof of work problem, which involved exor- using your computer to exhaustively search for a pattern and then attaching that pattern to your email. And that would be proof that your computer has expended some energy at some cost. And it could be some very small cost. It could be a fraction of a penny, for instance. Uh, and so sending normal email wouldn't be a problem. But if you were a spammer who wanted to send you know, tens of millions of emails, it would become very, very costly. Uh, so hash rate is really the number of sort of hashes that you have to go through, that you have to exhaustively search to find a pattern. It's kind of a measure of how much energy is being expended by the Bitcoin network. Uh, so it's the energy that is, is expended is a way of securing the network. Uh, so the, the higher the hash rate that's being expended by Bitcoin miners, the higher the security of the network. Um, so it's just ha- uh, hashes, uh, the hash rate is just that. It's that's a measure of how secure the Bitcoin network is. Mm-hmm. And so 10 years ago, when Bitcoin was you know a little bit younger, anybody using their computer could kind of become a Bitcoin miner. What are we seeing now? Is it really just the realm of um, of corporations who have the ability to kind of go to where the, the cheapest energy is to be able to set up these massive uh, mining networks? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. So you're right. In the beginning, anyone with a regular computer could mine Bitcoins because, uh, I mean, there were very few people participating on the network. But as people kind of recognized that Bitcoin was valuable and was becoming more valuable, they sort of started specializing in producing computer chips that just did Bitcoin mining and, and nothing else, um, which would be uh, by by which I mean uh, computer chips which could hash, create a lot of hashes per second to do this exhaustive search as fast as possible. And so you had specialization in the creation of mining hardware. Uh, so that meant that regular people with their regular computers could not mine any more profitably because they're just the regular computers are far slower than these specialized computers. And then people also realized that one of the big costs in Bitcoin mining is electricity. And so you had mining centers uh, sort of gravitate towards parts of the world where there was very cheap electricity. And that's typically in areas of the world where they have uh, they've an overcapacity of uh, uh, energy production because they've overbuilt. Um, and an example of this is Sichuan province in China, where they built these gigantic hydroelectric dams, and there just weren't enough people in that province to use all that electricity. So it's essentially being thrown away. It's a, it's free electricity that's being thrown away. So a lot of Bitcoin miners went there uh, and took their specialized hardware there and started mining there um, uh, because that was the place where they the, the they could get the cheapest energy, and energy is the primary input cost to Bitcoin mining. So, yeah, Bitcoin mining has become very specialized. Uh, There are companies who specialize in producing the hardware. There are companies that specialize in finding facilities for uh, these devices, these specialized computers, uh, where they get the cheapest electricity and where they have a lot of, you know, computer fans to keep all the equipment very cool because they generate a ton of heat. So this isn't something that a regular a regular person can really do anymore. And it's kind of in the same vein to gold mining. Like, you know, you know, a few thousand years ago, you could probably go to a river and take a pan and pan, 
the water to, to find little pieces of gold. But because most of the surface gold has been uh, already found, if you if you want to mine for gold these days, you need very specialized equipment and mining equipment and that sort of thing. Uh, so it, it's kind of similar in that sense. So most regular people, if they want Bitcoins, shouldn't be Bitcoin mining. They should just find a place to, to buy Bitcoin. And on that, so how do investors buy Bitcoin and how do they store it? So the easiest way to buy Bitcoin is to find an exchange, a Bitcoin exchange. And these are really pretty similar to um, foreign currency exchanges. You know, when you go to the airport, you have some dollars and you're traveling to, uh, you know, India or or wherever you're going and you, you want rupees, you just exchange your dollars for rupees. Now, these Bitcoin exchanges are the same idea. They're just uh, businesses mostly run online uh, and um, you connect your bank account and you deposit some dollars and then you can uh, buy or sell Bitcoins. Um, and, and most of these websites, are, you know, feel very similar to if you're using a regular brokerage account or a bank account. So they're very easy to use, very easy to set up um, and uh Fairly, fairly easy to figure out how to buy Bitcoins once you've created an account. Once you've bought some Bitcoins, you can either keep them with the exchange. A lot of these exchanges act almost like banks and, you know, keep your Bitcoins on deposit at, at, at their uh, facilities. Or uh, you can withdraw your Bitcoins and you can store them yourself. And um, one of the great things about Bitcoin is that you can store a very large amount of savings by yourself on something as small as a USB drive. Uh, and that's savings that isn't controlled by any company or any government. And if you wanted to, you could easily, you know, fly to a different country and keep all of your savings with you. So so Bitcoin gives you this very powerful tool to, to have control or sovereignty over your own savings. Uh, and this is something that really hasn't ever existed before. Yeah. And so you mentioned that... Uh- you had like five Bitcoins sitting on your laptop that has kind of evaporated. What number of Bitcoins out of the 21 million or say that, you know, 20, 18 million that are out now, do you reckon is estimated that it just disappeared off, you know, in places that can't be accessed or keys that are forgotten and lost? Yeah. So um, the estimate is somewhere between three and five million. And most of those Bitcoins were lost in the early days when people were mining Bitcoin and they just, they weren't really even sure what it was or whether it would be important uh, or valuable. And they, they just really didn't um, pay much attention to keeping the private keys to their Bitcoin. And so they had a hard drive, for instance, there are numerous stories of people who had Bitcoins on their hard drive, and then they ultimately just threw their computer away. Um, and there's a story of someone in England who has a hard drive uh, with, I think approximately half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin at today's prices and it's at, at the local dump and he's been petitioning the the city council for I think five years to, to go in and and dig up the dump and find his hard drive they haven't uh, they haven't let him yet but I'm imagining if if Bitcoin continues to do as well as it has he can probably cut the uh, local city government in for some of that and uh, they'll, they'll they'll let him do it but yeah it, the estimate is that somewhere between three and five million bitcoins were lost. Uh, and most of those come from the early days of Bitcoin's history. Mm. So when people are buying it now, they're not really buying into 21 million. They're really buying into probably a ceiling of like 17 million or, or yes. less even. Yes, yeah. that, that's exactly right. Yep. 
Yeah. All right. Let's step away from the technicals and look at the underlying bullish thesis for Bitcoin. Your 2018 article called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin is probably one of the first articles anybody looking at investing in the Bitcoin space should take the time to read along with the, uh, the initial white paper. There seems to be a shifting narrative over the years about what Bitcoin's primary use case is. Some struggle to see it as a currency given the volatility and others talk about it as a store of value. Can you explain the practical evolution of Bitcoin in the past, what we're seeing now, and then in the future as, as you see it? Yeah. So, you know, people are sometimes confused about money. This is sort of goes back to the question of what money is. Um, and, and, and most people take money for granted in, in whatever society they're in. They just assume it's there and it, it works, but they don't know how it came about or why it has value or why its value goes up or down over time. Um, and one thing that people think about money is that money is a medium of exchange. Uh, it's the thing that you go to the store and you buy, buy stuff with, but really that's only one of the, one of the functions of money. One of the other functions of money historically, that's been really important is store of value. That is people will keep their savings in money because they expect that money will keep its value over the long term. And really that function of money has been uh, debased by by governments over the last century in particular uh, because by debasing a money, governments are able to, by inflating a money supply, governments are able to kind of tax people in this invisible, more insidious way than to, to tax them directly. Uh, so... The thing is, in, in the early days, people were a bit confused about Bitcoin because they were really confused about money. They didn't. They thought money is a medium of exchange and Bitcoin kind of looks like money, so it should be a medium of exchange. But really, money is something that evolves in stages. If you look historically at something like gold, which used to be money you know, for most of history, uh, it evolved in stages before it became... Uh, a medium of exchange and had that role that we understand today is, you know, the, the main role that money has. Now, the evolution starts with uh, something, uh, an economic good essentially being a collectible, people wanting to own it just because it's cool or, or it, you know, it's shiny, it's a shiny rock, I want to have it just because of that. And humans have this innate desire to desire things that are rare or scarce we want to we want to own things that seem like there aren't much of them and that really is the 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 driver that want you know got those first humans to pick up that shiny rock and desire it um the next stage is once you have a bunch of people who desire this thing the shiny rock uh other people start recognizing hey this is a pretty good store of value because other people value it and uh if i have some of it it's going to be valued by people uh, other people in society. And so it's something good just to hold because it holds its value. Uh, when enough people value something that it becomes a store of value, then it becomes useful as a medium of exchange. Because if everyone values this thing, you can use it for exchange. You can go to the farmer and say, I have, you know, an ounce of gold. I'd like to buy, uh, some butter from you or buy some meat from you. Uh, so, once once it's used uh, as a medium of exchange by a lot of people, then it gets to its final stage, which is a unit of account. That is, everything becomes priced in terms of this monetary good. 
And so you go to the grocery store and everything is priced in terms of dollars. It's not priced in terms of bananas or apples or, you know, oil. It's priced in terms of money. And so those are the four stages that uh, money evolves through before it becomes the, the fully fledged form of money that we, we really understand today. And Bitcoin is going through those stages right now. In the first, you know, couple of years, people held Bitcoin and owned it not because it had any value, it really didn't have any value, didn't even have a market price. They held it just because it was cool. It was a new technology and they're like, I just want some of this. Um, But over time, more and more people have valued it and recognized that because it's scarce, it's kind of a good thing to have. And then it slowly transitioned from that collectible stage to the store of value stage. And certainly Bitcoin is not quite a store of value yet because it's, uh, it's still quite volatile and uh, mostly volatile to the upside has been going up a lot, uh, but it's slowly becoming a store of value. It's slowly taking on that role that uh, something like gold has today. And people recognize gold as a store of value because it's held its value for a very, very long time. Bitcoin is transitioning into that stage. Uh, once Bitcoin becomes widely owned across the world, it will probably transition to becoming a medium of exchange, a global medium of exchange. And then people will kind of understand it to look much more like the currency or the money that they use today. But we're still, I think, quite a way away from that. We're probably at least a couple of decades away from that. Uh, But certainly from an investing perspective, there's still a lot of upside because there's still so many people on earth who don't own Bitcoin who will, I think, come to appreciate that it is an excellent store of value uh, and it's something that's good to keep some savings in. So you think it's we're still transitioning into that medium of exchange thing, even though we've seen like initially the nefarious kind of drug dealers and Silk Silk Road Silk Route uh, were able to you know buy drugs using it, and then we saw the guy with the pizza, uh, and then as of I think last week Tesla has put it on the American website that you can buy a Bitcoin uh, buy a yeah, Tesla. Yeah, yeah. So some people used Bitcoin as a medium of exchange early on, but it's really very limited usage. And, you know, you gave the example of the Silk Road, which was a, a website that allowed people to, to trade illicit drugs using Bitcoin. That's one of the examples where people are, are willing to uh, exchange Bitcoins because they, they felt like it, it, w- it was safer to do that. It was more anonymous uh, to use Bitcoins and also because you can't use traditional financial rails to buy drugs online, you're simply not allowed to do that. Uh, but really people have recognized that because Bitcoin is becoming a store of value, it's not a good idea to spend it. And you gave the story of the guy who uh, bought two pizzas back in 2010 for 10,000 Bitcoins. Uh, and those those two pizzas are worth a, a half a billion dollars today. Um So people have recognized that because Bitcoin is increasing in value so quickly, there's a really large opportunity cost to using your Bitcoins to buy things because, you know, I have a story like this. I spent a couple of Bitcoins in 2014 buying a Bitcoin ATM for a few hundred dollars and I don't have those Bitcoins anymore. Those three Bitcoins are now worth about 180,000 US dollars. So people quickly recognize this and realize that Bitcoin isn't good as a medium of exchange now, not because it's difficult to transmit, it's really easy to transmit and it's digital and so it's great in that sense, but because it's going up so quickly in value, it doesn't make sense to spend it right now. It will make sense to spend it eventually uh, once 
you know, most of the world has some savings in Bitcoin and, and the price sort of stabilizes more than it has right now. Mm. And so once it becomes the medium of exchange, the next stage then is potentially a unit of account where it might kind of usurp the uh, US dollar as the, the global currency. Is that the, the thesis in the long term? Right. Yeah. So that, that I think is like the bullish case for Bitcoin is that it eventually becomes the global reserve currency and it supplants the dollar. Uh, and that's something that I think is going to happen in the long term because uh, I, I think Bitcoin is just a superior form of money. It has all the attributes that make make for a great money. It has all the attributes that made gold a great money uh, for 5,000 years, except it, it improves even on gold. Uh, gold had uh, this problem that's very difficult to uh, transmit and transport. It's physical. So, you know, it, if you want to transfer a uh, million dollars of gold, it's really a pain. Uh, and gold has other problems. It's it's difficult to verify. If you get a gold coin, is it really a gold coin? There are a lot of fake tungsten coins that are, that are trading out there. Uh so, so Bitcoin is like gold, except has this magical ability that you can teleport it anywhere on earth in, almost instantly. Um, so gold used to be the reserve currency of the world. And I, I think that Bitcoin is going to achieve that same status that gold had about a century ago. Uh, it's just, just a matter of time. And really most current, uh, most countries would prefer that the, uh, the the reserve currency of the world isn't the U.S. dollar because the the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency of the world puts the U.S. in a very privileged position over other nations. It can inflate its money supply, and that inflation is exported all across the world. So it gives the the U.S. central bank a lot of power, which is uh, what Charles de Gaulle, the 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 president of of France in in the sixties, called exorbitant privilege. It gives the gives the United States a lot of privilege. So I think eventually the world's going to move to a reserve currency that is apolitical, isn't controlled by any country. And I, I really believe that's going to be Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so can you explain why Bitcoin is a good store of wealth? Um, I, I mean, I think it's a good investment right now because I think it's it's transitioning to becoming a good store of wealth. It it has the attributes that make for a good store of value. And we've known about these attributes for a long time. Um, Ar- Aristotle wrote about them over 2000 years ago. Things like durability. You, you want your money to be something that isn't easily destroyed or perishes away. So you don't want wheat as money, for instance. Uh, you want it to be easy to verify. You want when you have the money in your hand, you want to be able to easily check that it's authentic. Uh, you want it to be portable. So a cow, for instance, doesn't make very good money. Uh, um, and most importantly, you want it to be scarce. And Bitcoin is the scarcest asset that has ever existed. It has ultimate scarcity. It's something that no more than 21 million can ever be produced. Uh, so it has all the attributes that that make for a great store of value. And so I think it's a, a great investment because I think slowly but surely the world is recognizing this and people are saying I should keep some of my savings in Bitcoin. So as more and more people recognize that that's and, and the, the supply is fixed, that's inevitably going to drive the price up until we find some kind of equilibrium where uh, there's enough of the world's savings stored in Bitcoin that you don't have big flows into Bitcoin that will you know, dramatically increase its price. So I think 
it's something that's becoming a store of value and right now it's a great investment because what you're in, what you're betting on is that eventually in the future more and more of the world will recognize that it is a great store of value and so you're you're kind of early in that process and by by betting on it you're actually hastening the process because you're one of the people who's adding your savings and this kind of confuses people because it seems circular but really it's a feedback loop and this is a feedback loop that happens during the process of monetization that is something becoming money is that people put their savings in it and the price goes up and that attracts more people to put their savings in it uh, and eventually it reaches an equilibrium where most of the people around the world or in a, in a particular economy have put their savings in it and it stabilizes in price and then, then it really is the store of value it's uh, it gets to that um, function of money of keeping a stable uh, value over time. And like you said, it has that transportability that uh, with the kind of Holocaust people who are left with nothing but the shirt on their back, this this allows people who are not as fortunate as you as I to live in, you know, the US or Australia, who may need to escape uh, conflict countries to just carry a USB key or a code in their head and escape with, you know, potentially a large amount of their wealth and, and set up a new life somewhere else. Yeah, that's a that's a great point because uh, you're bringing up kind of um, the, the 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 people who had to escape Europe during World War II. A lot of the Jewish people who fled Europe were only able to flee with the shirts on their back, and they would get to America and uh, they'd have to rebuild their lives. And in, you know, in our modern world, there are places around the the world where uh, national governments can be fairly oppressive, especially to particular minorities, um, and they, they, they have all sorts of capital controls which prevent you from moving your savings out of the country. So, for instance, if you live in China, it's very hard to move your savings out of China. Uh, and, and if you were part of a persecuted minority and you wanted to leave the country or you found a, a means of escaping, it would be really beneficial to be able to keep your savings in something that was digital and easy to transmit and that no one really knew you even had. Uh, so Bitcoin really is powerful in that sense. It, it lets people hold savings in a way that they control completely uh, and can transport very, very easily. Mm, that reminds me actually, yeah, that the China limitation on what um, immigrants can actually take out. I know one of my mates, he was telling me you're limited to like 50,000 US dollars per person per year. And so for him to get his money out of China to buy a house here is kind of going to take like, you know, 10, 15 years at that yeah. kind of rate, which is, is quite limiting. Yeah. So yeah, right now, yeah. Bitcoin's market cap is sitting around the 1 trillion and a bit um, US dollar mark. What level do you think it needs to be at to become, um, to compete with gold as a store of value or to become the global reserve currency? Uh, so, so gold currently has a market capitalization of $10 trillion. And I think, you know, there are various bullish cases for Bitcoin. And I think in my mind, one of the more conservative ones is that I think Bitcoin is obviously superior to gold as a store of value. If you look at the, one of the things I, I write about in my articles, if you look at the attributes that make for a good store of value, Bitcoin is superior to gold along all of them except for one, which is established history. Gold has a very long history of being money, um, except I think, you know, that that's going to disappear fairly quickly over time as, as people come to recognize Bitcoin is a permanent institution of the world in the same way the internet is. Uh, and I think that usually takes about 20 years before people really start feeling that something, uh, a new technology is a, a permanent institution of the world. Um, so, 
you know, I the, the really bullish case is a Bitcoin becomes uh, uh, the reserve currency of the world. And then I think the upside is uh, at least 100x. But Bitcoin just taking over gold status as a, a global non-sovereign store of value gives you a, a 10x. And I could easily see that happening in the next five to 10 years. Um, so, yeah, to, to, to compete with gold, uh, to get the same market capitalization, Bitcoin would have to about 10x from here. Uh, and I actually think we're already seeing this. We are, we're already seeing that uh, some of the demand that you would expect going into gold is going over to Bitcoin because we're in this environment, this unprecedented monetary environment where governments across the world are inflating their money supplies at rates that have never been seen before. Um, so the United States, for instance, it increased its money supply by 30% in, in one year uh, and, and created almost $2 trillion in, in the space of one year. These are just unprecedented numbers. And what that does is it, it, it tends to uh, uh, undermine the value of the currency. And in, in periods of high inflation, high monetary inflation, people have typically put some money into gold uh, worrying that their savings held in dollars are going to uh, be inflated away over time. And gold has traditionally done well in those environments. But right now, actually, gold has not been doing well. It's been kind of uh, sitting flat or, or slowly declining over time. And I, I really believe that what's happening is that a lot of high net worth individuals and family offices around the world are looking at Bitcoin and recognizing that it's superior. And, and instead of allocating their assets uh, and their savings to gold, they're, they're allocating them to Bitcoin. So I, I think we're actually right now witnessing that transition of, of Bitcoin overtaking gold as a store of value. Now, it's not going to happen instantly, but I, I think that transition is happening right now. And then the next move is, you know, where does it take over? Uh, say real estate. I think real estate globally is like, I think Bitcoin's like one trillion, gold is like ten trillion, and then you've got the real estate market at about a hundred trillion around the world. And then where that starts eking out some of the funds that people would allocate to traditional real estate investments. Um, so when when people approach Bitcoin as an investment, it's often a struggle to compare it to stocks, cash, gold, and other alternatives like fine wine and, and um, you know, masterpiece artworks. How do you explain the comparative investment case for, um, against these other alternatives? Yeah, the thing most people find really difficult is that with tr traditional assets, the way that you value them is to use a discounted cash flow analysis. You look at the cash flow that's generated by an asset and then you, you discount all the future cash flow into the present using the interest rate uh, at the time. And and so you look at the rent of a house or you look at the, the interest of a bond or, or the dividends of a stock and you, you value them that way. But money is very different. Money is the one asset in an economy that isn't valued through cash flow. It's valued game theoretically. And this is something that most people find very difficult to understand. Every society needs money because it acts as the foundation for all savings and trade. But what you want to do is you want to keep your savings that you keep in money in the money which is uh, used by everyone else. This is the game theoretic part. So everyone is kind of thinking, well, what is everyone else using as, as money or keeping their savings in? Uh, and you want to keep your savings in that particular thing. Uh, so, you know, there are various 
monetary goods that exist, things like gold, fiat currencies like the US dollar or the Australian dollar, silver is another one. Uh, And now there's Bitcoin as well. And what you want to do is you want to keep your savings in the thing that you think in the future people want to keep their savings in. Uh, and it's not completely unanchored to reality. It's it's uh, it's not something where it's just completely a game which doesn't uh, have any attachment to any benefits between these different kinds of money. People are looking at the attributes of money and saying, well, I want to keep my savings in the money which has the best attributes as a store of value. Uh, and lets me to do things with my savings that wouldn't be possible in these other forms of money. So we gave an example of, you know, people in China who who might want to leave China. If someone was living in China and said, you know, I want to take my wealth out of China, they'll they'll think, well, what assets can I use to do that? Well, I can't really use stocks because that's con- completely controlled by the government. I can't, you know, transmit those stocks uh, across to another country. Uh, can I use gold? Well, yeah, I could buy a few million dollars of gold and then I have to carry that in a in a bag and, and take it to another country, but I could get stocked at customs or I could put it in Bitcoin and I, I could leave the country with a lot of savings that way. So people are making these decisions uh, about what the optimal store of value is and that process is game theoretic. So it's not related to cash flows uh, and most people find it's very, very difficult to understand because it's not a traditional way of valuing an asset, uh, but it's the way that money is valued. Mm. So in terms of scarcity, it's, it's like a Picasso or Rembrandt where there's none being made um, after a certain point, uh, but it's got the divisibility and transmissibility that um, gold doesn't have, even though gold's got that um, you know concentrated store of value uh, case behind it. Um, with regards to the we talked about the halving cycles before. Have we seen sort of major changes in the terms of adoption and the prices um, related to the halving cycles and the stories that have kind of evolved as each time that um, that mining reward has halved down? Yeah, certainly people's interest in Bitcoin has varied over time, but I think probably the big transition that's happened right now uh, after the, the last halving that happened is that institutions have become a lot more interested in Bitcoin. Uh, so major financial institutions now want to uh, provide Bitcoin as an offering to their clients. A number of large corporations in the United States have started adding Bitcoin to their corporate treasury. So, uh, you know, a famous example of this is Tesla, Elon Musk's company, uh, purchased $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin to keep in their corporate treasury. So there's a lot more institutional and corporate adoption. And I think that's what's really going to define this current cycle is that corporations are going to recognize, hey, we have this huge balance sheet of mostly being held in, in uh, dollars. Uh, and the value of these dollars is kind of melting away because the interest that we get on the dollars when we hold them in short-term government bonds is like almost zero, uh, but the inflation rate is three to four percent at minimum, and probably if you if you count the rate at which assets are increasing in value, the real inflation rate is probably somewhere between ten and twenty percent. So companies recognize this, and they they are trying to find ways to. Uh, invest their their balance sheets so they don't lose value over time. And, and Bitcoin's become a, a really interesting asset to corporations because they're recognizing, hey, this asset has performed uh, fantastically over the last decade, 200% a year for a decade. 
Now, maybe it's not going to perform at 200% a year forever, but if it performs even at like 50% a year, that's massively outperforming what our, our cash pile is getting. Uh, so maybe we should allocate some portion of our treasury to Bitcoin. And, and I think that's really going to happen a lot more during the next year. So really big investors um, like Druckenmiller and Tudor Jones, and then now I think uh, Howard Marks and also Ray Dalio have kind of opened up their eyes to, to Bitcoin and a lot of retail investors and institutional are likely to kind of follow suit potentially just like they did with gold over the past few years with some of these guys. Uh, corporations are buying Bitcoin and putting on the balance sheet. What, what's? Can you just give us some idea of the rough numbers of what some of these corporations have actually um, put back, you know, put into Bitcoin? Uh, so I know Tesla put in 1.5 billion. I think it's sister company SpaceX, which is also owned by Elon Musk, bought a fairly substantial amount. Although I don't know the specifics. MicroStrategy, which is another public company, uh, has bought, I think, uh, somewhere between one and two billion. Square, which is a uh, a company that provides services to small businesses, it's run by uh, Jack Dorsey, who's also the CEO of Twitter has put in about $700 million. Uh, and there's a number of other financial institutions that put in in the order of a few hundred million in, into Bitcoin. So the size of these buys is much larger than we've seen in previous cycles where you'd have retail investors, you know, investing, you know, a few thousand or maybe some of the bigger ones are putting in a few million. Now we're seeing institutions put in numbers that are closer to hundreds of millions or, or billions of dollars into Bitcoin. And right now, there's there's not an ETF uh, on the market uh, globally, but there are some private funds, as far as I'm aware, and, and and the Graystale Trust. Where, how far off do you think we are from seeing you know large scale ETFs uh, for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies listing on um, public markets? So there are a few countries which have uh, ETFs. Canada has a, a Bitcoin ETF, and I believe there's also one in Europe. Uh, the U.S. has not approved one yet, but I, I strongly believe that that's going to happen in fairly short term, and by that I mean one to two years. And uh, there, like you mentioned, there's a Grayscale is a company which offers a, a, a financial product, which is a trust uh, that you can use to, to sort of indirectly get exposure to Bitcoin, and the, the ticker symbol is GBTC. Uh, and, and Grayscale um, has hired. Uh, or is looking to hire a whole bunch of people who are ETF specialists. So it, it looks very clear that they're ramping up to turn their fund into an ETF. Uh, and and I expect that that's going to happen in the fairly short term. Mm, okay. Let's step away from the bullish case and examine the risks associated with Bitcoin. As doctors and investors, we always need to balance the risks versus the benefits of any decision. And so when researching Bitcoin, it seems there's two groups, the guys that think it's a scam and the guys that are, um, you know, very bullish, inevitable that it will at some point take over the monetary system. You're obviously on the bullish side. What do you see as the main risks associated with Bitcoin? So the the, the biggest risk in the early days to Bitcoin was protocol risk. So Satoshi Nakamoto solved this open problem in computer science and people were very skeptical that he had actually solved it. Uh, and so over the over the years, we've come to recognize that he did solve the problem and that the Bitcoin protocol is actually rock solid. And you have very, very smart 
cryptographers and, and brilliant computer scientists trying to find ways to break the protocol. And I think he's widely recognized that he did solve the problem of creating a decentralized money. But that's still, I think, a tail risk. Um, maybe some bug is found that, that is, a, is a, a fundamental flaw in Bitcoin. Uh, but the fact that Bitcoin has so much value and there's such a massive incentive to look for such a bug uh, means that people have been bashing on it for years and years and, and nothing has been found. But that's sort of the tail risk you need to be worried about. I think probably the last remaining main risk is that Bitcoin is attacked by a nation state or a group of nation states saying, we do not want to tolerate our citizens using something like Bitcoin because it's non-sovereign. Uh, no one has control over it, uh, and and we don't want to allow our citizens to keep their savings in something that we don't have power over or to you know transact with each other. Uh, so it could be that a nation says we want to have complete control over the financial system, and so we're going to ban Bitcoin, um, or we we we're, we're going to shut down all the exchanges where people can buy and sell Bitcoin. Certainly, if that happened in a global coordinated fashion, that would definitely hurt the price of Bitcoin and would hurt the process of monetization as Bitcoin becoming money. I think it's an open question whether or not this happens. And it's a question of whether Bitcoin gets enough political capture that it becomes essentially impossible to do this. What I mean by that is that if you have enough people who own Bitcoin in a given economy, it becomes very hard for politicians to attack it because people vote in their own self-interest. Uh, so, uh, a, an example I give of this is the company Uber, the ride sharing company. What they would do is they would go into cities and they would start their business. Even if the local government was hostile, they'd just go in and start it. Uh, and they would hire a bunch of drivers and get a bunch of customers and the drivers loved it, uh, because, you know, that was a good way of making money and the customers loved it because it was so much superior to the, the taxi industry. And then the city government would get hostile and would be lobbied by the taxi lobby and try to shut Uber down. But it became impossible because the constituents in their in their district were so pro-Uber uh, that they wouldn't let the government shut it down. And so Uber got enough political capture that it, it was safe. And I think the same thing is happening with Bitcoin. You're seeing a growing number of people own Bitcoin. And, and so the politicians who are elected into government are going to have constituents saying, you know, create policies that are, to, that are pro-Bitcoin or at least don't create any policies that are harmful to Bitcoin. And in the United States Congress, you already see a handful of members who are very pro-Bitcoin. And I expect that number is going to increase fairly substantially over the next few years. And I, and I think that's going to happen across the world, at least in democratic societies. Uh, so, but I think it is an open question uh, whether nation states are going to recognize Bitcoin as enough of a threat. And, and certainly it would be a threat to central banks. If enough of the world's savings uh, flows into Bitcoin, it becomes much harder to control monetary policy. So I see that as the, 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 the issue. Will, will the banking establishment and will central banks try to fight back before Bitcoin gets enough political capture that it's essentially impossible and shutting Bitcoin? 
Bitcoin down would be the equivalent of trying to shut the internet down. No democratic society is going to shut the internet down uh, because there would be such a massive political backlash to doing that. It would be too too much value lost and too many lives depend on it uh, that it would be impossible to do that. Um, so we're going to see over the next, I think, three years to five years whether Bitcoin gets enough political capture. I'm very, very optimistic about this because I think Bitcoin's adoption is growing very, very quickly. What would you say to those that argue that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value and it's um, it's digital tulips? So, I mean, this this gets back to the question of money. How does money have any value? And if you look historically, human societies have always chosen things as money that weren't valuable in the sense that they didn't have any other direct utility. They weren't good for anything else. Like gold, for instance, uh, is useless. It's a useless rock. Um but it's very good at one thing. It's very good at being money because it has the properties that are good for money. And so it was valued for that reason. And so money money is this thing that people find hard to wrap their head around because it doesn't have any other use, utility. Now, you know, today some people say, well, gold is useful because it's used in electronics. It wasn't used in electronics 100 years ago when, when gold was money. Um so gold doesn't really have any use, but it's it's served as money for a very very long time. Now the idea that Bitcoin is a you know tulip mania, I think is, uh, you know, it sort of has some kernel of truth to it in the sense that um, money money is always a bubble. Money is something; it's an economic good that is is has this huge value, but it's not good for anything else except for money. Now tulips could potentially have served that role. It was a bubble where it increased in value very, very quickly. But then people realized that tulips are actually terrible as money. They're perishable and they're, they're hard to transport um, and they're not um, fungible. <clears throat> Sorry, they're not fungible, uh, which means that one tulip is not like another. So you can't really use them in trade as easily as something like gold, where one piece of gold is equivalent to any other piece of gold. So... The tulip mania is something which has similarities to money in the sense that it, the, the value ra- rapidly increased over time, but it couldn't hold its value in the way that money does because it never had those properties that made uh, for a good money. Bitcoin, on the other hand, does have those properties in spades, uh, certainly better than any other money that's ever been created. Uh, so, yeah, it doesn't produce cash flows and it's not like real estate it's not like bonds and it's not like stocks but it's fantastic as money and that's where it gets its value from so if you if you wrap your around uh, your mind around the idea of money and where money gets its value from then you recognize that bitcoin is actually very very valuable it's something that's in the early stages of becoming money uh, and it, as it becomes money it grows in in purchasing power a lot and its price sort of goes through the roof Mm. Many are unsure or skeptical about Bitcoin due to its volatility. On a micro level, we we often see 20, 25% uh, percent price, move, price movements over days or weeks. And on a macro level, there's this halving cycle, which seems like it's, um, you know, there's a mania and then a, a drop off in prices. What's inherent about Bitcoin that makes these extreme movements, um, you know, higher than what we see with other commodities and, and you know, exchange uh, or do- dollar changes? Well, it, it's really a function of Bitcoin's nascency. It's still very early and these movements can really be attributed to the fact that you have like flows of savings into Bitcoin. 
you know, in the early days when there were very few people who owned Bitcoin, when when people like the Winklevoss brothers, uh, who became famous for their role in you know the 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 Facebook saga, when they put ten million dollars into Bitcoin, that dramatically moved the price up because it was still so small. When you have something that's limited supply and you have a large flow of savings into it, it's going to move the price a lot. Now, that volatility is really going to decrease over time as Bitcoin becomes bigger and bigger because the flow of savings moving into it isn't going to move it as much. So moving $10 million into Bitcoin you know, dramatically moved the price in percentage terms when they did that in 2012. If you were to put $10 million into Bitcoin now, it would barely budge the price because it's become this, you know, massive global asset worth a trillion dollars. But now also that the, the sort of scale of which flows of savings are moving into Bitcoin is also bigger. Um, so people are now trying to put in billions of dollars into Bitcoin. So that can still move the price. Eventually, Bitcoin is going to become big enough that uh, even companies putting in you know large chunks of their treasury into Bitcoin isn't going to move the price that much. So the volatility is really a function of the fact that Bitcoin is very early on in the process of becoming money. I suppose it's like the Archimedes bathtub, where you know, when, when it's a uh, a million dollars, it's a bathtub size amount of um, value in there. One big guy jumps in, and it, it it goes the level goes up significantly. But now we're moving towards you know swimming pool size. In the future, if we're at you know, the ocean size, an extra big player jumping, it doesn't really move the height of the the watermark m- much at all. Yeah, that's a that's a really good analogy. Yeah, it's a good way of thinking about it. And so we've had the halving cycle last May. Where do you think we are in this kind of bull run uh, that we're in right now? Uh, so, you know, just to step back from that question, one of the things I think is most fascinating is we've never seen uh, an economic good being monetized in real time. Uh, the process of gold becoming money took thousands of years, whereas the process of Bitcoin becoming money is happening in the span of, you know, a decade or a couple of decades. And so we can watch it real time. And one thing we've learned is that th- this process of monetization happens in these hype cycles where Bitcoin will, Bitcoin's price will sort of stay flat for, you know, an extended period of time, but then it'll s- gradually start going up as more and more people recognize that, hey, this thing is still around, it isn't dead. And then as it drifts up, you, you start to get this speculative mania and, and it really, the price goes parabolic uh, and eventually it gets to a peak and it crashes and it crashes down to a level that was higher than the previous plateau. And this has happened a number of times. Uh, and what's just absolutely fascinating to me is that um, the, these, this pattern of monetization that's repeating itself, if you, if you take one of these charts from one of these cycles and superimpose it on the prior chart, it's almost identical. So it's like a fractal pattern of increasing magnitude. So if you look at the chart, uh, Bitcoin's price chart from 2016 to the end of 2017, it looks almost identical to the the price chart from 2012 to 2013. Um, So, and we're in a new cycle now and it's playing out exactly like the last cycle. It's almost eerie to see it playing out. Uh, And if you believe that it continues just as the the prior cycle did, uh, you know, I'd say we're we're getting close to the parabolic phase of, of the market, where where you have this kind of huge blow off top, uh, and the price can go up two or three x within a matter of months. Um, whether it does play out exactly the same as as the prior cycle, that's an open question. But it's happened a few times now, and, and it appears to be happening again. 
That's probably a reflection of human behavior really more than any than the underlying um, entity itself, though, isn't it? <laughs> because it's yeah, human, it is. It, it, it's part of. It is part of. I think it's one of the things I find most interesting is it's part of the social dynamic of something becoming money. It happens in these cycles, uh, and the cycles have this very um, particular pattern. Uh, and if you look at it, the, the price chart of gold from like the late 70s to like 2010 had this exact same pattern that Bitcoin is exhibiting. It just took much, much longer um, because gold is, you know, naturally much bigger in, in terms of its capitalization. So the process took longer. Um, mm. So yeah, B- Bitcoin is doing something very similar. When I think what any monetary good would do, and, and we've learned that this is this part of the social dynamic of monetization. In terms of competitor risk, it's often we see that first mover doesn't necessarily become, um, you know, the, the dominant participant. Facebook uh, took over from MySpace. Why can't someone just create another Bitcoin equivalent, a Bitcoin 2 or something else and improve on its weaknesses and then make Bitcoin essentially obsolete and, uh, and clean the slate on, on a trillion dollar valuation? So it really comes down to a network effect and any any product or service that has a network effect, that ends up being the most important feature of that product or service. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the case you gave of MySpace being overtaken by Facebook is actually an exception to the rule rather than the rule itself. And usually that's only possible when the, the network effect is still fairly weak or fairly small. And there's, there's been some analysis done by various people. I think Lynn Alden wrote a paper on this, which is worth looking up, where uh, she talked about how once you get to a certain scale in, in the you know hundreds of billions of dollars, a network effect is essentially insurmountable. And I, I really think that's true uh, for Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin has by far and away the most powerful network of all the cryptocurrencies uh, in existence. Most of them have no network effect at all. Um, and and when any cryptocurrency is mentioned, it's always mentioned in, in the context of Bitcoin. So it's kind of like free marketing for Bitcoin. All the financial infrastructure that's been built uh, around you know, the banking system dealing with cryptocurrencies has been built around Bitcoin. I mean, you know, some exchanges support these other cryptocurrencies, but they, they don't have the the scale or the liquidity of Bitcoin. And if you're a if you're a large institution or or a large corporation trying to put money in, you want to put your money into the thing which is the most liquid. Uh, because if you put it into something smaller, you're really going to move the price a lot more and it's going to be harder to allocate capital to it. So large corporations are not looking to put money into these smaller uh, alternative cryptocurrencies. Uh, it's very easy to create them. So there's a, there's a you know thousands of competitors, but uh, that doesn't mean that any of them are, are going to be successful. And it's kind of in the same way, I think like Facebook, if if I created a competitor to Facebook and called it VJ Book, or you created a uh, an Andrew book, you know, Facebook isn't that complicated a website. You could do that, right? But it doesn't mean anyone's going to to come to it because Facebook has, Facebook has a very powerful network effect. And in terms of economic goods, money is an economic good which has one of the most powerful network effects. Uh, and I think Bitcoin has certainly achieved a scale in which it has a network effect that won't be surpassed by any of, any of its competitors. Uh, one case in which a network effect can be surpassed is if you produce something which is 10x better. Um, 
And for money, you'd have to produce something which is 10x better on the, the attributes that make for good money. I don't see that as possible because Bitcoin is basically an A plus on every attribute uh, that makes for good money, scarcity, divisibility, portability. Um, most cryptocurrencies, uh, if you're being charitable, uh, might be somewhat more interesting in one area, but they're not 10x better than Bitcoin. So they don't have enough of a benefit uh, that they're going to be able to surpass Bitcoin because it has those you know, fantastic monetary properties and it has the network effect. Mm, so there's plenty of other alternative cryptocurrencies out there at the moment. Do you think um, someone should invest just in Bitcoin and ignore the others or should they be spreading it out a little bit? I only, I only invest in Bitcoin and whenever there's a, a market where there's a network effect, it's typically winner takes all or maybe not winner takes all, but winner takes the vast majority. And so, you know, you could invest in the second or third player and make some returns, but most of the returns are taken by the dominant player in the space. Like for instance, if you were looking at um, search engines, you could have, you know, in 2003 or 2004 invested in all of them said, I'm just going to put in 5% of all of them. Or you could have recognized that Google, Google had become dominant at that stage and had a network effect uh, and put all of your money in Google. Well, most of the other search engines are all gone. No one remembers AltaVista or Dogpile or MetaSearch or any of those. Um, so sometimes, uh, you know, th- there's this kind of fallacy that um, diversification is like this great thing in investing and you, you should always diversify. Certainly diversifying across asset classes is a great thing. But when you're investing in a space, a particular space uh, where there's a network effect, diversification actually hurts you. It's always better to invest in the dominant player that takes most of the market. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about Bitcoin being a huge waste of electricity. Are we killing the planet one Bitcoin transaction at a time? Uh, Well, the short answer is no. (laughs) The, The nuance of this is when you look at the Bitcoin energy consumption, it's really important to look at where that energy consumption is and and what kind of consumption it is. We talked about earlier how uh, Bitcoin mining gravitates to places where there is an overcapacity of energy, where there's energy which would otherwise be thrown away. Uh, so you, you look at the Sichuan province in China, and the thing about energy is it can't be transmitted. Uh, so when you have excess energy, it just gets thrown away. It, you can't take that extra energy in Sichuan and send it to Australia. It doesn't work that way. Uh, and actually, it can't be sent that far. The, the decay of energy over power lines is, is fairly rapid, so you can't send energy very far. Bitcoin mining tends to gravitate towards places where there's an overcapacity. And most of these cases are green energy sources, which don't uh, add to um, carbon emissions at all. So hydroelectric dams... Or Iceland is another example where there's uh, very cheap geothermal energy, which doesn't add to carbon emissions at all. Um, and there was a study, a recent study, which showed that I think it's something in the order of 75% of all Bitcoin mining happens uh, in, in, in this way where there aren't any excess carbon emissions. Um, and Bitcoin mining actually is great in the sense that it incentivizes development of these uh, sustainable sources where you, you might have a sustainable source in an area where there aren't that many people uh, and it would be great to develop it, but it's not economic to develop it because there aren't enough people. Uh, and, and what you can do is you can supplant uh, 
that that lack of demand with Bitcoin mining. And that's what happens in, in a lot of places like Iceland, uh, where it would be otherwise uneconomic to develop the uh, energy resources of Iceland. You can really put a lot of money into it because you have this buyer of last resort who's willing to buy any excess energy you have for the, the, the purpose of uh, mining Bitcoins. And it's really, it's a fantastic way of being able to almost transmit that energy or, or use Bitcoin as a battery. One, that's one analogy people have said. Like you can take excess energy in one part of the world and store it in Bitcoin and then transmit it to other parts of the world and, and use Bitcoin as a, a, a battery for storing that value and transmitting it around the world. Mm. That's interesting. So with uh, miners, they keep the system together right now and they're awarded in Bitcoin and transaction fees. What happens though when all the 21 million coins are, are mined or minted? Will the system fall apart once um, coin rewards stop being um, distributed? So miners are compensated by uh, the combination of the block reward, which we, we talked about, which is the reward they get for mining a block, which is a group of transactions, plus the transaction fees that people are willing to pay to have their trans- transaction added to a block. And each block is limited in size. So you actually have to bid. Uh, you have to pay a transaction fee to get your transaction into a block. What will happen is that as the reward decreases over time, uh, miners are going to be compensated more and more with transaction fees. And you can actually already see this, that the the amount of compensation miners are getting from transaction fees is as a, as a percentage is, is growing and has been growing over time. Over the next decade or several decades, they're going to be compensated almost entirely by transaction fees. Uh, and so um, the security of the network will come down to people's desire to use Bitcoin as a, as a means of savings and uh, as a means of transacting on that network. Mm, okay. So moving to the investment case for Bitcoin, we've covered the potential and the risks of investing in it. What's your advice to someone who wants some exposure but's currently sitting on the fence? I think probably the, the, the most important thing to think about is not the price. You don't look at the price and say, "Wow, that's expensive." We, we've talked about money and how uh, you know the the price is kind of a reflection of people's desire to use something as money, and so the price goes up as more people adopt it as money. Uh, so the the price is kind of not the right way to think about it. I think the right way to think about it as an investor is what. Fraction, a fraction of my portfolio am I willing to allocate to this new form of money that's appreciating very rapidly because it's being adopted across the world? What what fraction am I comfortable with? And for some people, that might be 1%. Uh, other people might have you know a greater risk appetite, might be willing to put in 5 or 10% of their portfolio into Bitcoin. I think the only answer that really doesn't make sense is zero. Uh, Bitcoin is great to have in a portfolio just for its diversification uh, characteristics. It's not correlated to any other asset class. And the one free lunch that you get as an investor is to have assets in your portfolio that are you know, very diversified. Now, a lot of people think that means having an index fund with very different stocks, uh, but typically stocks all move in tandem during panics. Uh, so, what diversification really means is having different asset classes which move in opposite directions in different market uh, environments. So you should have stocks and bonds and gold. Uh, and I think Bitcoin makes a lot of sense as another component of a portfolio. Uh, 
Uh, so I would just say it shouldn't be zero. Uh, choose a percentage for your portfolio that makes sense uh, and matches your risk appetite. Um, in, in the early uh, days of Bitcoin, in you know 2012, 2013, I used to tell people that it made sense to put in one percent of their portfolio into Bitcoin because most people's portfolio moves about a, at least a percent a day because of just regular market fluctuations, stock market going up or bonds going down, that sort of thing. And so if you put 1% into Bitcoin, you probably wouldn't even care if it went to zero because your portfolio normally moves that much. I think Bitcoin has been significantly de-risked since then. Uh, a number of the big risks like protocol risk have essentially disappeared. Governments are much more friendly towards Bitcoin. The regulatory environment looks much more friendly. Um, and, and so I think it, it, it makes a, a lot more sense today to put in a, a, a greater percentage of your assets. It's a, it's a lot less scary than it was, say, eight or nine years ago. Uh, so, and, and you know, this also depends on the person's age and their risk appetite and that kind of thing. But I, I wouldn't think it crazy at all to have five to ten percent of one's portfolio in Bitcoin. Yep, and obviously not financial advice, but people should speak to their <laughs> um, relevant financial advisor. Um, there's, we talked about Bitcoin not having a, um, you know, a. a uh, profit or cash flow, but there are now these yield generating services out there. What are your thoughts on people treating their Bitcoin like a fixed deposit or a bond with these services? Yeah, so there are there are services which will let you deposit your Bitcoin and they'll give you interest on it, and the, the interest rates range from anything from like you know two to six percent, and that's kind of incredible if you think about it. Most savings accounts around the world, certainly in the United States, are yielding zero. Um, and, and the way these companies are working is that they're taking your Bitcoin and then they're lending it out to someone else who who wants to use those Bitcoins to either sell short or buy on leverage, you know, various financial services like that. And, and these companies are, are making a profit on the difference between the interest they give you and the, the, um, the profit they get from lending it out. Uh, so the risk here, though, is, is that these companies fail and the Bitcoins that you're lending them uh, are lost. So you're doing this at some risk to yourself. There's not a zero risk proposition. You're not putting uh, Bitcoins on one of these services and getting um, uh, risk-free interest. Uh, So it's definitely worth keeping in mind that that there is that underlying risk. Um, and, And certainly I don't think, my personal opinion, I don't think, doing this at this stage in a market cycle makes that much sense because you're risking the custody of your Bitcoin with a service that could potentially fail to get, you know, three to 5% when typically in a bull market, Bitcoin can go up like two, three, 500%. So it just seems like chasing pennies in front of a steamroller. It doesn't seem like going for the big win. Uh, my personal view is it's it's safer just to buy and hold Bitcoin for the long term. Uh, and, and anyone who's bought and held Bitcoin for more than three years has seen, you know, really fantastic returns doing that. Yeah, that custodial risk is, is um, or third-party risk is, is so high, really. And I think the saying is, if it's not not your keys, not your cheese. So um, people having it in cold storage is the only way they can really make sure that it's theirs. We've seen Tesla right. now take payment in Bitcoin. Should doctors start accepting payment in Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, in a way, it's a little bit of a gimmick to say you're accepting Bitcoin because functionally, it's no different to accepting dollars and then just turning those dollars into Bitcoin. Uh, and and it doesn't 
really um, it doesn't really change much because most people still don't have savings in Bitcoin, so they can't pay you in Bitcoin. So I think you know it's kind of cool that Tesla said this will accept. Bitcoin uh, for Teslas, you can buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. But I think in reality, there aren't that many people doing it. I think it'll change in the future as, as more and more people have savings in Bitcoin and have gains that they have on their Bitcoin. They may want to spend those Bitcoins. Uh, but but for now, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's anything more than a gimmick. Certainly, if you want to if you want to get some great marketing, you get a lot of attention when you do this. There's a lot of press around it. If you're a doctor and you wanted to get some press uh, some attention from the media for your practice, it would be a great way of doing it, saying we accept Bitcoin. It's certainly uh, a bunch of news organizations which would want to come and speak with you and uh, uh, learn about you know, why you as a doctor are interested in Bitcoin. So from, from that perspective, I think it would be great. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's, uh, I think that's, uh, I've taken up too much of your time already, but thank you very much for being so generous. Um, I understand you've got a book coming out. How can people uh, learn more about this, connect with you and learn more about the space? So the easiest way to, to connect with me or to find me is on Twitter. I, I write a lot about economics and Bitcoin. I'm real underscore VJ. So R-E-A-L underscore V-I-J-A-Y at Twitter. Uh, and I wrote this article um, sort of giving an economic framework for how to think about Bitcoin. It was called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. I've uh, significantly expanded and updated that article and, and I'm releasing it as a book hopefully in the next month. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. Uh, I'll ho- hopefully have that released in Australia as well. I'd, I'd love to have that available for all the doctors in Australia who are interested in Bitcoin. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, experience, knowledge, uh, and sharing that with us today. Thank you very much, VJ. Thanks, Andrew. It was great speaking to you. Thanks for hanging out with me today. If you learned something new, please share the episode with your family and friends. I'd love to get your feedback, so send questions, comments, and recommendations to me at andrew at medicalmoney.com. See you in the next episode.